Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians, where Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have learned while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. On today's episode, we speak with Dr. Hussein Gandhi, a general practitioner in Nottingham, UK. He's the host of the EGP Learning Podcast, where they discuss healthcare technology and its applications for GPs. He's on the show today to discuss the national health system, England's socialized healthcare system. There's a push among progressive Democrats for Medicare for All, a more socialized system for the U.S. So we discussed the strengths and weaknesses of the socialized English system from his perspective as a GP, and the differences and even some similarities between his systems and ours. Welcome back to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. On today's episode, we have Dr. Hussein Gandhi, who's joining us from England. He's a general practitioner there, and he also hosts his own podcast. So, Dr. Gandhi, thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, thank you. How are we doing? Doing great, doing great. Recording today from my mother-in-law's closet in uh, Zurich, Switzerland. Wow. So truly international podcast with you in Switzerland and me in the UK. Indeed. Indeed. So first, uh, let's just talk a little bit about your podcast. Yeah. So um, I co-host what's called the EGP Learning Pod Blast. Um, So it's a podcast that me and my colleague set up about um, just over a year ago. Um, partly because we're both a bit tech geeks and stuff, and we're also um, GPs. So I guess for the benefit of your audience, um, a general practitioner or a GP um, is probably the equivalent of a family physician that you guys would have in America, um, but based on our slightly different kind of structure of healthcare system and stuff. So um, we do majority of the patient contacts in, in the UK when it comes to health service and stuff. Um, and you know, I've got a huge interest in tech, huge interest in health and, and provision of health and stuff. So we started up this podcast that's just talking about all the various different forms of health technology, um, how you can use it either as a clinician or as a patient and the impact that it can have. So we've covered various different things like, um, you know, simple stuff like apps that people may use all the way up to things like genomics, artificial intelligence, video consultations, all this kind of stuff. So. Yeah, it's a topic we love. It's a topic we enjoy. And we've had some really interesting uh, stuff come out in the past few months. And we've got some really cool things coming in in the next few months as well. So, yeah. And I think my audience is mostly, uh, if not all, in the United States. But it sounds like this is not a UK-centric podcast. While it's it's based there, I think all health tech is international. So it it seems like it would be useful for, for anyone. Definitely. I mean, a lot of the stuff we may cover does relate to the kind of the structure of the um, NHS and the provision of healthcare in the UK, but particularly things like the apps themselves and, and the various different types of tech that we review and cover. Yeah, that's applicable or, you know, internationally and stuff. So um, one of my favorite ones that we covered quite recently as part of that was uh, something called Headspace. So it's an, an app that people may have heard of in America as well. And it's designed to try and help you with mindfulness and meditation and, and your mental health, really. And you know, definitely applicable anywhere where that you're based, really. Yeah, my wife and I actually just downloaded that app, and we started uh, we started meditating together before bed to help us just uh, you know after you put the kids to bed and all uh, and unwind helps us uh, get those rambling thoughts out of our head and get to sleep a little faster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I mean, like I said, uh, there's lots of different reasons for using applications and stuff, uh, and Headspace in particular is one of my uh, favorites at the moment. Partly 
in because of the way the healthcare system is at the moment it's one of the options i have to recommend to my patients because i may not have fuller access to other kind of resources at the same time so you know it's trying to look for the positives and in terms of what you can get hold of really and that sounds like an excellent segue into what we were planning to discuss today which is the uh, united kingdom's national health system which which actually i think i'm incorrect in calling it the UK's national health system, right? It's, it's, it's separate for Scotland, Wales, uh, Northern Ireland, and England, right? They're each an independent system. Yeah, so, so they're, um, they're all called the NHS, the national health system, but there are regional variations of it that are controlled um, regionally as well. So although the ideal and the original setup was a, a UK initiative, particularly with devolution in terms of um, Scotland uh, and that kind of stuff, that we've, we've now got our own various different portions. Obviously, we've got NHS England, we've got NHS Scotland, NHS Wales, and NHS um, Northern Ireland and stuff. And, and they have um, local control o- over how they um, determine their health service delivery uh, compared to various different areas. NHS England is the largest of the lot with the biggest population um, and definitely does seem to do things differently because so in the past a year or so, we've actually seen a change in the way that they um, manage particularly the primary care aspect of their healthcare delivery um, with Scotland kind of creating its own kind of contract, particularly for, for general practice and primary care. So tell us about the, the overall structure of the NHS. How does, how does this work? So the NHS is a government-funded healthcare system. Originally came back, uh, I think it was 1944, potentially it was. Um, I'm not 100% off on my years. Um, sorry, it was proposed in 1944, that was it. Um, and then it was effectively the father of the NHS is somebody called Anurin Bevan, um, or nicknamed Nye Bevan, um, who um, was basically came up with this uh, idea of having healthcare as a socialist kind of, a delivery mechanism that was accessible for all. Um, so the idea being that um, no matter who you were, no matter where you were um, within the country, you would be able to access and use healthcare um, for free um, and that money shouldn't be a deterrent for you being healthy. Um, and it eventually went through all the various processes that things went through to become law and it came into effect. And as a result of that, um, in 1948, and we had the national healthcare system that changed from what used to be a private healthcare system in the UK. Um, you can argue that it was very much needed at that time because obviously we were post World War II, um, where you know health had changed significantly with um, you know half the population, you know, effectively not being around, fighting off in the wars, coming back, and obviously the impact that may have had. Um, over that time, there has been adjustments to the original constitution. Um, and it's no longer that everything is completely free for um, healthcare um, access. So um, shortly after they did introduce charges for prescriptions, um, which is based on particular criteria. Um, and that's changed as time's gone on. Um, opticians access and dental access has changed as well. Um, so now you, you most likely will have to pay for some part of that access. Um, so for example, you know, your glasses frames and your glasses lenses, you probably won't get free um, anymore whereas you know if you went back to the original time you would have done um, and you know it continues to change and adapt and one of the more recent um, changes that we had was something called the Health and Care Social Act in 2012 which made radical changes to the um, the political structure within the NHS to take away some of the responsibility from the government and also change the 
the amount of private investment that could occur within the NHS, as well as a lot of the structural aspects of how it's delivered, both from a provider and from a commissioning perspective as well. Um, and that's led us to kind of where we are now, really. So a way for more private money to enter the system. I, th- I think I read that a for the first time, a hospital was bought by a publicly traded company in England. Um, yes, I, I think so. I think it was back in again 2012. There was a company called Circle that took over um, the Hinchbrook Hospital um, in terms of their running and, and delivery and everything. Interestingly, um, I think it was a short while after, about a year or so later, they had to hand it back because they couldn't manage it financially. Um, they were just not making enough. Um, I guess, profit or whatever, but that was handed back in terms of the contract and stuff. And I think that's where a lot of the the potential friction um, comes into play when it comes to healthcare system in, in, in the UK in terms of this dichotomy between um, you know, private and um, public healthcare funding and, and delivery. Um, and, you know, if you ask the run-of-the-mill person, generally a lot of people seem to have uh, originally um, a lot of hesitation about private healthcare um, in the UK. I think that that shit that is shifting, um, and there's a couple of reasons why they're shifting. Um, uh, but it, you know, in terms of what we're going to see, I think we are going to see more private healthcare delivery in the UK as the next few years go on, at the very least. So, as a patient, is there an option for private insurance on top of your, or or even instead of your NHS insurance, if you can even call it that? Yes. Yeah, so, so private healthcare is still continued. It's not that with the creation of the NHS, it kind of went away and no one's ever considered it. Um, so there's a variety of um, um, smaller private hospitals um, dotted around the, the area. So you, even where I live, which is in Nottingham, which I think is the 10th largest city in England, um, we have um, about five um, private hospitals um, in, in our city area. Um, and that's purely because, you know, some people still want the benefit of going private because um, it has different options. Um, some consultants, so, you know, physicians and surgeons and stuff still do private work um, and they have their own lists and stuff. And that's either um, through companies or more often not, it's it's a business perk more than anything. You know, so a company perk. So if you, you're with a company, they'll provide you with um, private health insurance, either free or a discounted rate as one of your employee benefits. And then you can access that. Um, and the key benefit it has is time more than anything, because if you're trying to pro- provide a healthcare system for a population um, that's free, um, then effectively the main thing you potentially might have to do is wait because you go into a, a waiting queue and it's um, the healthcare is delivered effectively based on need not based on convenience. Um, uh, and that's a key part of the NHS kind of um, mantra such that, you know, um, as with anything, you know, people are triaged into the, the category of most need first rather than, um, you know, what you may have specifically. And I think because of that, obviously, um, people want to use private healthcare system to speed up things or to make it more convenient. So it may be that, you know, if, you, if you're sitting on the NHS, um, you'll be seen in a couple of months down the line. Um, and you know, if you wanted to be seen, for example, next week, um, that most likely would not be possible. Say, for example, you know, uh, you, you've injured your knee, and you wanted to have um, a consultant opinion um, about that. Well, you potentially are going to have to wait um, to have that done. Um, so, that, that's where the key difference is. 
So you, you mentioned that there are private hospitals in mm-hmm. the United States. There are, I mean, there are a few publicly like county hospitals, mm-hmm. um, but most hospitals I think are are privately owned. Mm-hmm. But you get your insurance that though that hospital is then paid by your insurance company, which may be a Medicare or Medicaid, a pu- which is a publicly funded mm-hmm. insurance, or it may be paid by your private insurance. So the hospital itself is seeing both private and public patients, but you mentioned that they're freestanding private hospitals. How does that work? Is it, 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 it you need to have an, in, like, how do they end up getting paid? Um, so they end up getting paid by the government directly. So um, one of the key differences about the UK health system and, for example, many other countries like America and stuff is that um, I think it's something like uh, 80% of healthcare is paid directly by the government. And the government receives that money through taxation and, and you know through other sources. So we have something called national insurance. It's paid by every working person. Um, and how much you pay varies um, based on obviously your income and, and that kind of thing. And then that predominantly that chunk of money goes to fund um the nhs so the current nhs bill i think for this year is something like 120 billion i think it is pounds um but don't quote me on that exact number because it has just recently changed um but that's how much it costs to run nhs england um and as a result of that so like I said, that money comes from taxation, that money then goes directly to the providers and then that's what they have in order to fund their services. Um, the difference between hospital care and primary care is different. So majority of hospital care is payment by results. So they get paid for based on the work that they do compared to primary care, which is a capitation based. So effectively, um, so I'm a GP, um, I run a general practice. I get paid a certain amount um, per head, per patient, per year. And I have to deliver all the health care that that person may need from that amount that I get. So as an example, my practice is approximately 10,000 patients um, and I receive something like 130 pounds in total. And when you include all the you know minor top ups and that kind of stuff that we get per patient. Um, so that's what? Uh, 100, no, uh, 130,000. Sorry, I'm, my math's a little bit off this morning. Um, no, 1.3 million I mean, <clears throat> um, pounds to deliver the healthcare uh, for 10,000 patients. And that's regardless of how many times they come to see us, what they may need, you know, all those kind of things. We, we have to deliver the entire healthcare for that population for that sum of money. So if you happen to work in an area where patients happen to be more ill, let's say it's a, it's a, lower socioeconomic area uh, mm-hmm. where they tend to have more medical problems, mm-hmm. you're going to be working a lot harder because you have the same number of patients, but those patients are going to have a lot more visit, uh, visits. But if you're in a more affluent area where people tend to be less ill, uh, mm-hmm. then then you're going to have fewer visits. Your, your life is going to be a whole lot easier. Is that yeah. what? Um, so, so yeah, that's definitely the case. Um, there is meant to be um, some form of... Um, uh, modification around that. So um, we have something called the Carhill formula, uh, which is basically a calculation that's made based on the average age of population, the location of your population, that kind of stuff, that just the amount that you get. So I, I, I work in an inner city, Nottingham area, um, so quite a deprived population, very complex health needs and stuff. Um, and as a result of that, we get slightly more than, say, for example, 
um, another area of Nottingham where it's more suburban, you know, uh, middle class kind of stuff. Um, so the 130 odd pounds that we get um, per patient is slightly higher than other areas to try and counteract that. Um, whether it meets those demands is one of the key challenges of the NHS and particularly at the moment. Um, because we are having some challenges significantly with the NHS and, and particularly as winter hits um, this year, we're anticipating it's going to be quite challenging to say the least. But it sounds like you're financially rewarded for taking care of a more challenging population, whereas in the United States, uh, a lot of the sicker patients have Medicaid, which doesn't pay as well as private insurance, where people tend to be healthier. So mm-hmm. you actually get paid more for mm-hmm. taking care of healthier patients. Um, in principle, maybe, um, but I would say that the the um, the modification factor doesn't um, allow for the increased use um, and and need. So although it's um, it is an increase, it's not a significant increase. I would argue that allows you to deliver the difference in healthcare needs. So although I get more than say, for example, a um, uh, middle class area, um, they would probably get about one hundred and twenty pounds per patient. So it's not a huge increase in comparison. Um, and the other thing is, it's the challenge of the um, providing other income. So as I said, we still have um, um, private practice and stuff in the UK. Um, one of the rules within primary care is that you cannot offer um, a direct private care service to patients under your own list. So if I have a patient living in St. Anne's where I work, um, I can't turn around to them and say, well, we've got a private service where you can be seen this, uh, you know, um, quicker or for this particular reason. I can't offer that directly to my own patients. I have to refer them to another service. But can you see patients from someone else's list? Like, could you do, uh, I mean, it sounds like mm-hmm. you'd be extremely busy with all the patients that you need to take care of. But uh, yeah. I guess if you found a way like evenings or something to to take care of private patients, you could offer them from someone else's list, uh, your um, private services. Yeah, so definitely potentially. The challenge there is obviously, like I said, I, I work in an area which is more typically deprived and and doesn't have the attraction, shall we say, to a more leafy suburban, you know, um, kind of play, you know, partly it's aesthetics, partly it's character, that kind of stuff, you know, trying to attract people that would want to pay for their healthcare services. Um, not as easy um, and part of that could be down to services um, but actually the biggest challenge we have right now is just dealing with the day-to-day workload in order to have the headspace and the capacity to offer extra services um, to other patients um, so it, it, it is possible and it is done in some places um, but it's not a simple kind of um, process to go through. Um, no you can't <clears throat> you can't decrease the hours that you're treating your other patients in order exactly. to make time for those uh, those private patients. This is yeah. like, you know, like I said, you're extraordinarily busy to begin with. And, yeah. you know, having a podcast and an active Twitter account. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> to, to the busyness. So, um, mm-hmm. so what are some of the issues that you're seeing now with, with NHS? Because we're in America there's been a push on the progressive wing of the democratic party for Medicare for all, right? Mm -hmm. A more socialized system. And and we actually have a socialized system in America. Um, It's the veterans health system. Mm -hmm. Um, And and the problem, one part of the problems that we see in in the veterans health system is, is there, there's no incentive. So you're salaried. 
So it doesn't matter how many patients you see per day. Um, at least this is the experience that I had as a resident working at, at the Veterans Hospital, um, is that you see some people that really uh, see as many patients as they can. Uh, and you have some people that just, they work so slowly that they, they're very inefficient and that inefficiency leads to longer wait times for, for the veterans. So we have this socialized system and, and uh, that, that's just the tip of the iceberg in, in terms of problems with, with that system. So in theory, it seems nice. Everyone has a, has a right to healthcare. Everyone should get healthcare and it should be an egalitarian system where everybody gets the same care. Great, nice in theory, but in practice, there are all sorts of problems. Like you said, triage. Mm-hmm. Someone's responsible for triaging all these patients and determining who has more a more severe problem and should be seen first, um, and so uh, that leads to long wait times. Unless, of course, you want to increase taxation in order to increase the amount of money in the system so that you can have more people taking care of more uh, taking care of those patients, increased investments in technology, and nobody likes higher taxes. So, you know, you have this: everyone has a right to care nobody wants to pay for it. So, so what are some of the problems that you guys are seeing right now with, with NHS? Um, so I think that's probably one of the key aspects. So at the moment, the um, NHS system, like I said, is, is predominantly funded by um, government um, funds. Um, in the UK, I think we're just above the OECD um, average um, in terms of how much we fund per per person per um per area kind of thing. Sorry, what, um, what was that, OECD? OECD is the Organization for Economics, and I can't remember what the CD stands for, I'm afraid. Um, but basically, it's, it's the comparison of how much um, each country puts into its um, national, um, you know, its healthcare systems and stuff. So they analyze all the data and stuff. Um, and the UK is just above the average um, in comparison to um, some other countries and stuff. And um, interestingly, America is the one that spends the most on its healthcare system. I think it's something like sixteen thousand per head, and I think the UK is something like nine thousand per head. Um, again, the, the figures do change, um, and I think that's based off two thousand and fourteen or two thousand sixteen figures. Um, I can't quite remember. Um, so fairly recent. Um, and what's interesting is that they, they've looked at various different metrics in terms of how much funding you put in. Um, the type of funding you put in, so the split between private, government, or self-funded. Um, and then they've also looked at things like outcomes, so like um, life expectancy and that kind of stuff. Um, and if you look at the data, um, one of the things it shows is that um, so the UK kind of does okay um, in terms of you know the amount that it spend, uh, spends on healthcare versus the life expectancy of a patient. Um, if you, I think if I remember rightly, that the, the most cost-effective country, I think, was Japan with a life expectancy of something like 81 average um, for the amount that they put in. Um, the Scandinavian countries do very well, so, so their healthcare systems seem to be fairly effective in terms of um, financing and delivery. Um, uh, interestingly, the American one, um, which is probably the most funded one, and like I said, about 16,000, um, has not so good a life expectancy. I think the average life expectancy was something like 61 um, so there is a stark difference in terms of, um, you know, how much, um, is being funded and the outcomes. If you're just looking at life expectancy as an outcome, um, I think there, the America was equivalent to Turkey. If I remember that, right, seems, that, that does, that number seems, seems a bit low, uh, 61 doesn't, but, but it, I'm, I'm not sure. I know some of the metrics that we do use are not 
equitable in other countries. Uh, for instance, infant mortality. Mm-hmm. I think um, one of the metrics we we consider any birth a viable birth or any birth past. Uh, no, no, it's I think any birth past twenty five weeks we consider it a, a viable birth. Whereas in other countries they they use a different number. So, you know, is is it possible uh, for anyone past twenty five weeks to be a viable birth? Yes, and so that's why that number mm-hmm. is used. Uh, but, uh, you know, sometimes you're, you're comparing apples and oranges and, and it becomes harder to, to compare from one health system to another. But, but your, your point being, yeah. there are countries that spend, uh, that, that are more efficient with their spending, right? They spend a certain amount of money to get a certain amount of life expectancy. And while it may mean that you're stuck waiting for your knee replacement for maybe a couple months more, in the end, uh, you know, that, that convenience of being able to get that surgery soon carries with it a high economic cost. And so you have to decide where you're going to spend this money in order to get the best value. And and in America, we're terrible at that, right? Because Mm -hmm. if you have money, you can get care quickly. And if you don't have money, it can take a very long time or you don't may not have access to certain specialties at all in your your region. And then that leads to poor outcomes. So yeah, there's there's, there's a balance here is what you're getting at between the two and the Japanese seem to have it down. And I think when when your healthcare service is um, provided, you know, exclusively by the, the government, there are also um, restrictions that come on that. So, for example, um, cosmetic care, um, very little cosmetic care is funded on the NHS. So, um, you know, for example, if you had something that was um, causing you obstruction, like a mole or something like that, that was, you know, for example, catching on your belt line or catching on your, um, um, you know, bra strap or something like that. Um, you may be able to have that removed on the NHS, um, but you have to show that that is the that there is a medical reason for wanting to do it, not just purely a cosmetic reason. Um, so you know that would not be covered. Um, you know other things would be so, for example, burns patients, that kind of stuff, that they would still get some form of cosmetic treatment. Um, and you know, um, in terms of how that impacts um, patient workload. That, that's quite significant at times um, and patient um, reasons for attending the practice as well. So as I said, I, I work in primary care. Um, we see approximately 90% of the, the workload that comes through the healthcare system because to see any kind of specialist, um, you would need to go through your GP first before you could access them. So I, my understanding of the American healthcare system is if I wanted to go see a gynecologist, I guess I wouldn't want to see a gynecologist, but you know, um, you know, uh, if there's a patient I want to go see a dermatologist, let's make a more gender appropriate one, shall we? Um, then I can just go call up a dermatology um, provision center and, and just you know go see a dermatologist as long as I'm either able to pay for it or have it covered by, like you said, the Medicare or, or whatever like that. It it actually care. depends. It depends on your so so. I think it was like in the eighty, maybe the nineties. HMOs were very popular, which sounds like what the what the um, health maintenance organization. So you signed up for a health maintenance organization, and then uh, you were given a certain panel of patients. So this is this is the number of patients that you need to take care of. But within that panel, I'm not I'm sorry, not within the panel. Within that HMO, there were a number of specialists. So you could have all of your specialists within that panel, and yes, you'd need to go through the GP. And there are some insurances that also make you go through, but I think most of those are the the Medicaid's and the managed Medicaid's, where you actually need to have a a referral from your primary care physician in order to see a specialist. Um, and then the wait time really depends on where you are, right? Like if you're if you're in a in a, a city 
that's saturated with practitioners that take your insurance, then there's probably not going to be a very long wait time. Whereas if you're in a rural area where there are very few specialists, it's, it's going to take much longer to be able to see that, uh, that, that specialist. And so your region then affects your outcome, which is an unfortunate consequence of our system. And I think that that would aptly describe the way that the NHS service currently runs. So, um, I, as I said, working in a city area, um, we have actually um, really good access to things like physiotherapy. Um, so patients can self-refer themselves as long as they're registered patient within the city area to a physiotherapy service. And they once they're seen, they will be seen um, until um, their problem has a reasonable resolution. Um, whereas if you go to where I live in Nottingham, which is only, you know, two miles away you know we're not talking you know massive distance at all um if i was to injure myself i have to go see my gp first to get referral to the physiotherapy service and i will only get two sessions no matter what the problem is um so even if it's resolved or not that's all i'm allowed um and then i either have to go back and get another referral or i have to pay for it if i want the top up kind of thing wow yeah i would i would imagine that most Injuries warrant significantly more visits than uh, two visits with a physiotherapist. Or yeah. here's a here's a squeezy ball for you. Uh, good luck. Yeah, exactly. So there is massive difference, and I, th- and I think it comes down to this simple principle: there's a certain amount of money in the pot. Everybody kind of wants or needs a piece of it. Um, and what do you do when the pot runs out? Because that, that's the ch- current challenge we're having to deal with in the NHS at the moment. Um, healthcare is increasingly becoming more and more expensive because of technology, because of medications, because of, you know, the, the, the governance as well, you know, increasingly more and more people are becoming more medically legally aware. And therefore, you know, you can argue that clinicians are over requesting at times to cover themselves. Um, so that's happening is, in your system too. Oh, easily. Um, I think any healthcare system is starting to happen because it's a natural creep, isn't it? Um, and part of that I think is, um, guideline driven um so as more and more guidelines come out um, you look at the complexity and the level of depth of care that we have now for simple health conditions compared to what was done 20 years ago you know the number of potential tests and, and you know recommendations and all that kind of stuff that you may have to do is completely different um compared to you know that kind of time and you know um that has an impact in the workload in the process you know that kind of stuff so you know um i now have patients who um, we focus a lot on um, prevention, um, prevention of ill health. Um, and that can mean either screening programs and that kind of stuff, which um, are now becoming more prolific. And, you know, I, I may have 40-year-old, medic, 40-year-old patients who are taking anti-blood pressure medications and statins because of cardiovascular risk scores to try and prevent them having a problem in the future. And that comes with the workload that it comes with. So, you know, we would need to see them at least probably once a year just to check that they're okay, check their blood pressure, um, check their bloods to make sure that the medications aren't causing damage to their liver and possibly check their cholesterol again and that kind of stuff. And that all comes with workload. That all comes with cost, um, which is not borne directly by that person. They don't pay for that, um, but they do through taxation. So it's you know paid through via various different costs. Um, and that creates challenges in terms of, like I said, the provision of healthcare. Because what do you do when the pot is so... Um, bursting that at times you want to provide things and you can't so one of the more recent changes we've started to have is that actually they're now starting to restrict a lot of the potential kinds of treatments that we may be able to offer so one of the more controversial ones that we've had recently is um, patients with celiac disease um, used to have um, um, things like the flowers and the 
you know, uh, the food items um, available on prescription. And um, if you didn't pay for your prescriptions, you effectively got them for free. Um, so therefore, um, you know, there were patients that, that had access to that. Um, because of changes in the way that they're looking at things, they've now basically said that all those prescriptions are no longer applicable. So we can't offer things like the, you know, the, the gluten-free products and stuff um, on prescription uh, anymore. And if you don't pay for your prescriptions, then you don't get them at all. So you now have to pay that cost yourself. It seems, though, that that would add some efficiency to the system, right? That you have a central body that looks at the cost versus the benefit and is able to make those decisions. While as an individual patient, you might say, wow, this I have this, uh, I have this problem, and now it's not being... I'm not getting the assistance of the assistance of the government anymore mm-hmm. in terms of being able to have eyes on the entire system and weigh um, the the financial cost versus the actual benefit. It, mm-hmm. That would seem to be beneficial, although I'm sure there are going to be controversial decisions where a lot of people don't agree, you know, sacrifices yeah. need to be made. Definitely. Uh, and I agree it would be useful if it was a central kind of group that made those decisions and they make some of them. Um, part of the challenge as a clinician comes in the way that those decisions come down in terms of wording. Um, so a lot of the, the changes that come into play, um, so uh, more commonly used ones are a lot of the medications that are available over the counter. Um, so for example, um, paracetamol, which I believe you guys call acetaminophen, um, you know, uh, for fevers and pain for kids, um, you know, antifungal creams that you can easily um, use to treat self-limiting conditions, that kind of stuff. Um, a lot of those are now not recommended to be prescribed um, for use by patients for a, you know, a minor illness or, or a self-limiting condition. Um, but interestingly, the wording they've used is not that you can't prescribe them, it's that you should not prescribe them. And that slight semantic aspect is actually a real challenge for particularly, you know, GPs in my situation, because the the overriding tenant of um, prescriptions when it comes to the NHS system is that if the clinician is recommending that you have the treatment, you should offer it on a prescription. Um, and therefore, if I'm seeing a patient and I say, yep, yeah, you've got a fungal infection, uh, you should have an antifungal to treat that, then I'm telling them that I'm now being told I can't prescribe you them because you should buy it yourself. But then I've got another tenant that says I should prescribe it if I'm recommending it. You know, there's nothing to stop that patient from then complaining and potentially taking me through the legal process for not issuing them a prescription that they would have had for free. Are there any repercussions for overprescribing to you? Um, directly, no, apart from, I guess, reputational issues and stuff. And obviously the, the cost that it comes into it overridingly to the healthcare providers. So, um, I, for example, the, the money that uh, my practice gets, that doesn't include the drug costs for our patients. That's bought by the, the higher organizations, the CCGs and the, the area teams and, and, and that kind of stuff. So um, CCG stands for clinical commissioning group, which there's about 50, I believe, over the country that, um, Basically, they get the money to deliver the healthcare provision, both primary care, secondary care, opticians, the, the dental, all that kind of stuff. Um, it, sounds like, it sounds like that's the HMO, the CCC. Yeah, so, so effectively, an HMO, yeah. yeah. It's the best description. <coughs> and um, so they bear the cost of the drugs. Um, and um, we get monthly reports of how much, in terms of our previous year, 
um, comparison we're spending, whether we're overspending, underspending, that kind of stuff to give us a marker. So, and you know, that they will make those um, figures um, publicly yeah, uh, evident. We've actually got um, a really interesting website created by a guy that got challenged um, uh, to basically look at prescribing. He created a website called opaprescribing.net um, that looks at the individual prescribing habits of every general practice in England um, and compares them. So it tells you how many um, practices are prescribing antibiotics. Um, it tells you how many practices are prescribing you know, um, other kind of medications and Sometimes just having that information out there in public can be quite a stark and contrasting kind of tool to make you think about your prescribing habits. So you'd be, they're using shame as a tool to get you to prescribe fewer things. Um, uh, I'd, I'd see it more as a learning tool, but yeah, I guess you could look at it as, you know, a, a positive and a negative. Um, so, um, you know, there, there are definitely medications that I think need to be controlled a lot better. I mean, you know, America is in the grips of an opiate crisis. Um, the UK is following you quite closely. In fact, we're, we're not far behind you guys in terms of the, the impact that opiates are having on the general populace. Um, we are you know, having huge issues with patients taking significant levels of opiates um, for you know, potentially inappropriate reasons. And you know, being able to see where you are sometimes can be a good marker at giving you an idea of what you may need to change within practice and the way that you approach things and stuff. And, you know, in, in that sense, I think it can be quite a powerful motivator to see where you are and how you need to change and, and you know, the impact that will have both on system care, but also patient care as well. Cause you know, yeah, that's that's that would be an interesting thing for for us to do as well. I think in some regards it could be used as a marketing tool because you have patients that say, "I definitely need an antibiotic right now. I want to give. I want to go to the person that prescribes everybody antibiotics." Uh, but but in in the same regard, we we also have this public uh, information tool that I don't think many people are interested in seeing that tells how much money you get from the drug companies and from the equipment companies. So if you have someone that comes to your office and brings you a lunch once a month to tell you about their medication, that goes into the system and that is then made public. And I don't really think anybody's looking at it, but if you had something that was prescription based that showed how much people how much people are prescribing, uh, I think that would be a useful tool. Like you said, a metric for yourself to see where you fall and help you reflect and improve, uh, but also uh, system system wide, um, help us manage trends and and, and manage our, our prescription medication use. Yeah, I'm I'm going to be having someone on the show in a bit to talk about the importance of antibiotic stewardship because that's that's just such a huge problem. It is. I mean, that's one of the massive things that's being um, uh, pushed at the moment in terms of you know making sure that patients get the right treatments for the right cause. And actually, it's making a difference. You know, I am now actually having many patients say to me, "Well, I don't need antibiotics." But what they want is then a check to make sure that they're still healthy. So the reason why that's quite interesting is, um, so I talked about the fact that um, our healthcare system is based on a capitation head. So, you know, I get £130 per patient. I have to see that patient no matter what their healthcare needs may be. Um, and say, for example, they're worried that they may have a cold. Um, they can book in to see me to talk about the cold. Um, and I would have to see them. And that could be once a year. Um, that could be once a week. That potentially could even be once a day. Um, and I can't really turn around and say to them, we're not going to see you. Um, 
unless I've got a system in place to try and triage them out in some way, shape or form, particularly if they're coming to me every single day. Um, and that's obviously how, how do you balance that cost in terms of provision of service um, versus what you've got in, all, in the pot to pay for it kind of thing. And um, so I do actually have some patients that will come and see our practice on a weekly basis. That's, you know, 50 odd appointments in the year. Um, and that's a lot, you know, imagine spending that much time at your doctor's office. Um, and some of that is appropriate. Um, some of that you could argue is not appropriate, but the impact that has is that that's a resource they're using. And then you still need to provide resources outside of that unless you can change their health behavior, which is where a lot of the things like antibiotic stewardship has come into play. You know, it, I think it's getting people to recognize you don't need antibiotics to solve every kind of cough or cold or, or, or that kind of thing, because the reality is you don't. Um, but what it has shifted people to is that they're now asking the question, I just want to make a check to make sure I'm okay. Yeah. And that is having quite a significant impact. And the way I try and describe it to, and particularly nowadays, we are seeing a shift in the, in the fact that people, so the NHS system was always designed to tell you if you're unwell. Um, but nowadays people are wanting to know if they're healthy, which is not really what the NHS is actually designed to cope with. It's purely there to, to, to tell you if you're unwell and deal with you if you're unwell. It's not really a public health tool. And I think a lot of people are trying to use it as a public health tool, and that's having a significant impact on the way and delivery and the workload that it's having to deal with. But that that would also be the advantage of having a central system, right? Is that if you have this paradigm shift, then the central system mm. is able to pivot. Whereas if there's no central system to be able to respond to something like that, then uh, the, the, it's not possible to have that paradigm shift. Because the, I think this that paradigm shift just is happening in many places, right? Where you're you're trying to optimize your wellness, not just treat the treat the illness. Yeah, I guess the difference is that we, we've got a separate organization that is meant to be doing that. So we have a public health department across the entire country that's job is to try and deal with, you know, um, keeping people healthy. Um, and you could argue um, quite clearly that public health has better impact on population based health care than any individual doctor will ever have in their time. Um, Apart from probably Edward Jenner, I think he's probably the only one that can claim to have a better outcome. Um, um, but, you know, it, it, it's a massive shift. And, and, you know, I see people for social reasons. I see people because um, they're lonely. I see people because, you know, um, there's no other route for them to go to. And they end up coming to see me to try and sort out things that realistically I, I would love to help them. But I don't have the bandwidth i don't have the capacity and i don't have the roots to giving them the help that they need because all those services all those things they may need um either don't exist or have been changed to prioritize for other kind of health options and therefore the only way for them to access it would be to pay for it themselves but we live in an area where you know in an age where the nhs is seen as the main healthcare provider and people don't want to pay for it unless they've got you know the funds to do so and that may not always be the case particularly working in a inner city deprived area um and some of that is changing um so i mentioned earlier that we've got you know um uh, new players in the market we, we've got the proliferation i think and probably in america you've got the same of, of video consultation services for healthcare um uh, and that's providing a new avenue for people to 
access healthcare services in a way and a, and a, a method that they would want to. Um, there's both a positive um, and a negative. Um, so, you know, um, one of our the providers, you pay £20 a month and for that you can have as many consultations as you want through a video interface um, with a GP. Um, and if you, um, that can be seen privately um, or you can see them through in certain areas on an NHS basis as well. Um, and you get your healthcare delivered by that method, which obviously has some benefits in the sense that you don't have to take time off work to go necessarily. You don't have to go sit around in a waiting area, um, you know, with other people. If that's one of your challenges that you have from a mental health perspective, for example, or from an infection control, I guess, if you've got chickenpox and things. Um, and you get healthcare the kind of way that you want it. Um, but then the other question is, does that also drive a different method of delivery? So are you therefore more likely to get prescribed, like you said, things like antibiotics or medications or, you know, um, even complaints is one of the things I've seen people have increased because they're then being told, actually, we do need to see you face to face. And they're like, well, I don't want to come down. And, you know, vexatious complaints is a challenge at times. Well, I think that's a great segue back into your podcast, the, the use of mm-hmm. technology in, uh, in primary care. So if, uh, why don't you just tell us about that podcast one more time before we wrap up? Yep. Yeah, so it's the EGP Learning Pod Blast. Um, and so we're on all the various platforms like um, iTunes, Podbean, um, that kind of stuff. So if you just um, search for it, it'll come up quite easily. Um, it's mainly hosted on on our Podbean site, um, uh, podbean.com slash EGP Learning. Um, and we uh, provide a monthly uh, podcast where we cover a variety of different things like app reviews, healthcare, um, tech um, reviews and deep dives. Um, so one of our more recent and popular episodes is one that looks at video consultations. So if you want to hear more about how that impacts healthcare delivery and stuff, that's a good one to have a listen to. Um, and yeah, so every month we do that as well as um, in between we interview people who have done and created health tech as well to see their journey and, and to share that with our, our listeners. Is there anywhere else people can find you? Yeah, so, so I'm on Twitter um, at EGP Learning, but my personal one, which I'm more than happy for people to contact me on, is at Dr. Gandalf 52. Um, just to be clear, I'm not 52 years old, which is one of the common questions I get. No, there were just 51 other Dr. Gandalfs before you, I guess. Um, no, there weren't, but it was just uh, a way to try. Unfortunately, Dr. Gandalf was taken by a dead account, which really annoyed oh. me. I've been campaigning Twitter for many years because it hasn't posted for about seven years now. That it's probably a dead account. Can they please close it so I can take it? But um, Twitter don't seem to want to listen, which is fair enough. They're, they're an international company that don't really have to listen to little old me. But um, yeah, it'd be nice if they did. Right. So uh, Dr. Gandalf 52, EGP Learning, fantastic podcast. Listen, I've, I've, uh, I've really learned a lot about the national health system and uh, maybe some trials that we're going to end up with in the United States as we may end up moving towards a more socialized system. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time to discuss this with me and our listeners. And um, mm-hmm. it's been a pleasure. Thank you. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Find all previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, and write us a review. You can also visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash physician's guide to doctoring. If you are interested in being a guest or have a question for a prior guest, send a message or post a comment.